Our reading is from the first letter of John, chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. If you don't have a Bible, please follow along your Bible if you do. And if you don't, um, we have it up on the screens for you to follow. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves him has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is God's word. Lord God, you loved us so very much, even though daily, daily, moment by moment, we do things against you. You sacrificed your most precious gift, your son. And as Abraham was spared slaughtering his son, you did not spare yourself. Thank you for that sacrifice. Thank you for that love. Thank you for your gift. Amen. And Pastor Marin's going to come and preach. Please be seated. You know, not just at Christmas, but almost any time, if you don't get emotional when you consider what God has done for you, then start praying. All right? Well, it is a joy to be here. Take a quick moment and pray with me. Almighty God, we just praise you and thank you for the worship we've had already this morning, for the wonderful gifts that have been uh, displayed to your glory and the praise of your name. Father, just be with me and, and bless the words that come out of my mouth. Let them not be my words, but yours only, for your people know your voice and respond to you, God. Well, it is our third Advent message and I think you might have noticed that we've had some kind of nice artwork and collateral uh, things to go along with our messages over this period of time. That's not because Kyle or Morgan or I are particularly creative and, and artistic. Uh, it's because we got this good, good stuff for free, and, and we thought we'd use it. Of course, you have the option of springing for the extra fancy stuff, the videos and the Sunday school curriculum, which we didn't do, but we went ahead with the free stuff because uh, it looks nice. And that is all to say that basically um, that I've chosen to stick with the themes or the, the titles that they suggested for these messages. They're all based on the idea of a journey, which makes sense because Mary and Joseph were on a journey to return to Bethlehem and the wise men were on a journey, a long journey to see the one born king of the Jews. And we can equate man's quest for spiritual truth to a journey 
And we as Christians are metaphorically on a journey to grow closer and deeper in our relationship with Christ. So all that is just to say I'm sticking with that title, Love as a Journey. It always reminds me I should be saying that like in a Barry White voice. You know, <laughs> the journey of love. <clears throat> but uh, the, well, a reason why that whole metaphor works um, on all of these Advent topics, remember we've already done um, hope and joy. This week we're doing love. Peace is sort of the fourth Advent topic, and I think that'll be wrapped into the, the final message next week. Um, but these are not things that you can go out and, and pick up. You can't just go out and acquire joy or peace or even love. You don't pick up a case of hope on your way home from work. You don't go shopping for joy. Shopping might bring you some joy, but you can't pick it up in the store. Love isn't something you find mixed in with the teacups at a yard sale. And you can't order peace on Amazon. If you do, you get something that looks like this. <laughs> Literally, that's what you find if you search for peace on Amazon. I'm going to get that down so it doesn't distract you, because I know some of you. No. Hope and joy and love and peace are not objects that you put on or commodities that you consume. Rather, we want to think of them as a destination, a place that you need to journey to and eventually come to reside in. The journey of love is a journey from immature, childish, elementary, emotions and approaches to relationships upward to a mature type of behavior in relationships. We can see this journey modeled every day all around us, especially if you have or know someone who has or have ever met a child. Raise your hand if you fit into any of those categories. If not, let me introduce you to our Sunday school. And you will soon see an example of the elementary stages of love. Babies are really, really cute. My youngest grandchild was up here this morning, eight months old, cute as a bug's ear. We have the Rodericks's with Daisy, you know, cute, cute, cute. They just make you smile. And I've been told that that cuteness is a natural defense mechanism designed to ensure their survival. <laughs> because as cute as they are, as cute as those little itty bitty kids are, they are so selfish, aren't they? They cry when they're hungry. They cry when they're uncomfortable. They cry when they think they're missing out on something that they want to have. And they're only thinking of themselves all the time and what makes them feel good. But hey, let's give them a break. They are babies. And their God, as we read back in, when we studied Philippians, their God is their belly. They want what makes them feel comfortable. They want what relieves their discomfort or just makes them feel warm and, and cozy and safe. Their only concept of love is getting what feels good, what comforts, what soothes. And that's pretty immature. That's where we all start out. Luckily, 
or by design, <laughs> as the child matures, he or she will learn that there's some give and take required to remain happy. You have to give a little to get a little. And they soon realize that mom and dad have power. And that they can manipulate that power to their benefit. They just have to make sure they give mom and dad a little bit of what they want. And then they get a little bit more of what they want. And as we grow socially and intellectually, we discover that this is true not just among our relationships at home and in the family, but outside the home. A child soon learns that if he throws a tantrum and takes his ball and goes home, he's lonely. It's much better to maintain relationships and friendships, to be able to play in a group, a, a, a gang in your street maybe, or your neighborhood, a good gang, or you know, to be on a team, and these things are something you learn over time, the, the give and take necessary for relationships. We learn that cooperation and behaving well is a means of getting good things, that there are rules at home and that there are rules on the playground. And there are even rules in the marketplace and rules of commerce. I kind of like, I don't always like going to work, but I like getting a paycheck. Right? We abide by those rules and we learn as we grow to, to live in that world and in that kind of lifestyle. And I'm not just talking about laws or even ethics, but there are unwritten social rules and the norms of society that we follow to show respect, to prevent embarrassment, and to get along. And it's a two-way relationship. I give something, you give something. And it's not just dry and matter of fact. There's respect and um, relationship and love of a sort that goes on even in those um, practical um, relationships. People who don't play by the rules are looked down upon or at least avoided because it's just, it's uncomfortable to be on one side of that relationship and have it not returned. And it's just not profitable as well. It could be from nurture, from the way they were raised or experiences they had in life, or nature, you know, a, a, a disability. Just some people are unable or haven't learned to operate according to those rules. And they're operating still in that baser, less mature concept of relationships and how to how to interact with people. And often we prefer not to engage in those kind of situations. But thankfully, there's another level of maturity that comes along from people that we will come to admire and maybe even try to imitate who don't strictly follow the rules either. They don't break the rules, but they're just not all that concerned about the receiving side of the relationship. These stages of human development, of a capacity to love, are captured in the different Greek words that are translated as love in our English Bibles. Let's move on to one of those. The first of those 
is eros, which means simply desire or carnal, fleshly wants, desires. This is probably the furthest away from how the, what you would use if I asked you to define love. And we all know in our mind that love is about giving and being nice and kind, that strictly speaking, stuff you want doesn't fit our definition of love, but we show that we have no distinctions. We have very poor categories of love. Every time we say, I love cheesecake. See, in normal use, we blur the lines of, of what we want love to mean. And in the Greek, this word, and it will be in your Bibles in some places where the word love is in, appears in English, is really eros in the Greek, and it refers to just a physical, basic, often between a man and a woman, kind of desire. It's not a bad thing, it's just one of the categories. Another word for love is storge, and it's very similar to the third word, oh, don't give away the farm there, uh, phileo. Phileo, which is brotherly love. And both of these have to do more with what I was speaking about earlier, just the relationship we have with people where we have to give to get. You know, not that it's dry and, and just mechanical like that. There's, there's a closeness that can be involved in that. There's, a, you know, pe there's people you want to deal with, and, and sometimes you have to because they're family. That's storge. You know, but all of this is something you, you mature to, you grow into this level of love and relationship, and this is a, a category of the word as it's translated in love in your Bible. Um, it's defined usually as brotherly love, and um, they represent um, this relationship formed by good manners, respect, civility, and even commerce. I give you money, you give me some widget. And that's good, I don't mind, I like getting widgets. Especially at Christmas, we're going to give people all kinds of widgets. It's not a bad thing. But the fourth word for love, and throughout your Bible, this is the predominant word used for love. It's agape. You've all heard it, and most of you have heard it before. This is the word used for sacrificial love, the kind of love that doesn't look after its own desires or needs, but of others first. It's divine love. It's the love that does not expect or require a like response. This agape should be our goal. It is our goal as we're trying to grow closer to Christ. As we read in our scripture, God is love. As you try to get closer to God, you're going to be getting closer to love. But this is our destination. It's the place we need to reside. We need to be in Agapeville. It is where God resides. If you find yourself there, you can't miss him. Because God is Agape. That's the scripture we read earlier. He did not travel there. God did not mature to this point of love. He has always been there. There is no act, this is interesting, there is no act of God anywhere in Scripture described as eros or phileo. Only agape is ever used 
as the love in the context of God toward us. He always operates in agape. When He is saving us from our sins, when He's showing us grace, when He's giving us joy and meeting our needs, certainly, but even when He is correcting us, even when He is disciplining us, even when He refines us and scatters His people, or even as we read in Deuteronomy 32, as the eagle stirs up his, the nest. That's a picture of the eagle tearing apart its own nest so that the chicks will fly away. God does that sometimes. Interestingly, in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 24, we have this long discourse where Jesus is telling his disciples about the apocalyptic signs of the end time doesn't seem like a place to stop on a Christmas Advent uh, tour of Scripture, but he says this in verse 11. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. And the word used for love there is agape. And I think that's critically significant because the other forms of love are discluded from that statement. Phileo could be increasing. Eros could be increasing. And that verse would, could still be true. In fact, those other forms of love could be manifest broadly. Commerce could be increasing. Business could be booming. Social norms and, and the, things, the things we do to get along in society could be still manifest. But sacrificial, selfless love will grow cold. It'll become rare and even be mocked in public, in the media, on the internet. It almost sounds like we might be there today. Right? But don't give up hope. The verses we've read in 1 John chapter 4 contains a remedy. No matter how cruel people may be to strangers, online or on the street, no matter how people may divide the whole world and their local communities into categories with sound bites and slogans, no matter how rude or crude we may think that this society is becoming, no matter how people may defend their fallen condition, and no matter how Christ's own followers may argue and bicker, no matter how the forces of nature and nationalism and self-serving governments will contribute to debilitating poverty, no matter the degree to which evil permeates the society, there is a great message of hope. And you're an important part of it. 1 John 4.12 says, No one has ever seen God. Now we can have a little debate on the side about, what about Moses and the cleft of the rock? Well, he saw God's back. No one has ever seen God face to face. But 
the next verse says. If we love one another, if we agape one another, God lives in us and His love, His agape love, is made complete in us. That is an amazing statement. God's love is made complete. In some of your Bibles, in some translations, it will say God's love is perfected in us. Now, frankly, I don't, I don't feel worthy of that statement. I don't feel like I'm showing God's love most of the time. But that's what the Scripture says. What does it mean? What does it mean? God, who called us and saved us by His incomparable grace, is living in us. And somehow others are going to see Him in our acts of selfless love, agape love. What does that look like? What does agape love look like if you and I are demonstrating it? To answer that question, I'm going to take a very dangerous trail. I'm going to try and weave an Advent message between two obstacles. Number one is theology. I'm going to try not to get too theological, but there are some really smart people who have done a lot of thinking long before us, and it would be a shame to move ahead in our faith without taking advantage of the things that they've written and discussed and, and prayed about and, and the Holy Spirit has revealed through them. The second danger is that um, this is going to be a decidedly Easterish topic. But it is mentioned in the verses we read in John, and that is the subject of atonement. I'm going to try to weave an agape, look at agape love from a position of Advent and, and look at what that atonement means. So uh, pray for me. <laughs> atonement is simply the concept that Christ died for other people's sins. Praise God. Big concept, very simple terms. I sinned, he died. How? How can that possibly work? There are three points of view that theologians have used to look at atonement. They are roughly described as looking at Christ as victor, Christ as sacrifice, and Christ as God's expression of love. None of these on its own is the right or, the, or wrong. All three points of view are necessary to get a full understanding of what the atonement is. And it's kind of like a seven-year-old t-ball league. Everyone's a winner. All three points of view are, are true and show us important things. The first one is, is Christ the victor. And this one even has a Latin name, so you know it's, it's right. It's real. Christus Victor is a point of view where the atonement emphasizes the idea of victory by God over the forces of evil. And as Kyle was teaching us that new song this morning, I'm thinking this is a Christus Victor song. If you think back, you know, the, the verses were about Christ winning, beating the devil, uh, freeing us, uh, ransoming us, and... Um, and that's the basic idea behind this Christus Victor point of view of the atonement. 
and Jesus Christ by adhering to all of the prophetic requirements of Messiah established that he was worthy to take on that role and win that victory for us. Um, you know, and that's where we get the, 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 the concept and the doctrines of Christ descending into hell and, and retrieving the keys to, to sin and death. Some of the primary verses that support this Christus Victor point of view, and these are mostly um, taken from the New Living Translation. Um, it's, it's good to read different translations from time to time. The words that you're not used to sometimes make you stop and think a little bit more about what you're reading. But here in uh, Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. The concept of ransom is a big part of this Christus Victor view of the atonement. In 1 Corinthians 15, 56, for sin is the sting that results in death and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gave us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. And a couple other key verses, uh, which I'll read, Colossians 2.13, he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Again, Christ the victor. And Hebrews 2.14, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. See, it's all about Christ winning, taking that power of death away from the devil, ransoming us from the slavery that we were held in. So how do we show, how do we emulate, how do we complete the agape love of Christ from this point of view of the Christus victor kind of love? How will people see victorious, the victorious Christ living in us? Well, I'd like to make a couple suggestions. There are many more. Um, I think that any time we, we can demonstrate this type of love, whenever we fight for justice, whenever we strive to overcome evil in the world, and we ought to be doing that. When we do that, people are seeing the victorious love of Christ completed in us. Um, anytime you vote with a good conscience, anytime you um, advocate for something or lobby for something that after careful consideration you sincerely believe will alleviate suffering, and reduced causes of injustice, people could see the victorious love of Christ in your life. And they ought to see that in us, at least from time to time. If you can encourage people who are engaged in that kind of fight, support them, volunteer, um, you know, just find a way to help out in little ways. These are ways in which the world can see the agape love of Christ, and that amazing word, it is completed in us, becomes operable. The second category of atonement is sacrificial love. The sacrificial love is 
is a view of atonement that emphasizes that Christ, that in Christ the debt for sin was fully paid, that we are debtors to God and have, we're bankrupt. We have no ability to pay our own debt. And yet God cannot just accept us out of some maudlin type of love into His kingdom. God cannot wink at sin. God cannot accept it, allow it, or condone it in any way. Justice does have to be served. God is just. And the amazing thing, as in the selfless, sacrificial love of God, developed a plan from before the beginning of time in which to satisfy justice, he himself would pay the price. That wasn't plan B. That was plan A from the beginning. How can we show the world this form of sacrificial, this sacrificial quality of love? Well, the scripture tells us to consider others' needs as more important than our own. That's the beginning. Do without something in order to give something to, to someone in need. Support a child in poverty, in Jesus' name, as many of you are doing as we support children through compassion. That's sacrificial. You have to give up something to make that happen. Give of your time or your skill to help a nonprofit, a school, a hospital, a clinic, a homeless shelter, a food pantry. There are many places where people in need will come and gather and, and look for help. And we can be there to, to be that help. And so complete God's sacrificial agape love. Some of the verses, I didn't read them, Romans 3.25, where it said God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And Ephesians 1.17, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us. And Hebrews 9.14, how much more, it says, and that's in reference to the blood of bulls and goats that makes men outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. And finally, the third point of view that looks at the atonement is from the point of view of God's, what I call, beautiful love. God's beautiful love. Called that just because it's so attractive. The, um, this is the most Advent-like, Christmas-like view of the atonement and the work of God's love through the atonement. The uh, Faith Life Study Bible says, says this. It says the purpose of the atonement from this point of view is not so much to satisfy God's justice, but to move people to love God because of his great love for them. And it all comes down, in this case, to grace. As we all know, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. How do we show that? How do we complete God's love in this way? It's not that hard, really. Just do nice things just because. Do good for people just because you can. Send a card to someone who's sick or hurting. Another thing which we, we try to do regularly from our church. And we've seen it have amazing impact on people's life. You know, maybe not turn the world around, but sure makes their heart feel better, makes them feel loved and remembered and respected. It's a good thing to do. Making a meal for someone or inviting someone over to your house for a meal. Invite your boss home for dinner. Shovel a driveway or a sidewalk, something for a sick neighbor or a shut-in or just someone who's really busy. Say thank you to people or send a thank you card. I know, I'm talking crazy now. <laughs> but, you know, these are little things. There's a great song by a... Uh, a, a Christian singer, um, Bob Bennett, I think, called Small Graces. There's just little things you do. The, the way you close a door, the way you say thank you. Little things every day that can just demonstrate, that, that bring peace and promote at least the um, um, phileo kind of love, just good relationships. But even as we're reading in, in the scripture today, even that is a way of showing and completing and perfecting God's agape love. Even little things. You know, I am so glad that the God of the universe, the one who made all things, is largely defined by this characteristic of selfless giving. We are God's creatures. And if you imagine any other reality, the, 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 the assuming that the creatures has any level of intelligence, the definition of goodness follows from the nature of the creator. It's just the way it is. The guy who makes everything gets to say what good is. It would be that way no matter what. Thankfully, our creator, when we say something is good, we mean it typifies the nature of God. And this form of selfless giving is at the peak of what we call good. Thankfully, our creator is not a God of strict justice, of swift retribution, of balanced scales at all cost. I would never survive <laughs> that kind of God. But you know, there are people in the world today who believe that, that that's the nature of God, and it's the root of a lot of problems in this world. Our text today said, and I think this is part of the reason for that existing, that no one has ever seen God. 2,000 years ago, give or take, God became a man and dwelt as a man among men, and men could see him and touch him. Today, 
God dwells within men so that men can see him. And when we let people see God in us, then we're finally walking in agape. And maybe if more people could see God in us, there'd be less people following false gods. Let's pray and prepare our hearts for the time of communion. Because certainly communion is where all of these aspects of God come together. His victorious love. His sacrificial love. His beautiful love. Father, there's so much for us to learn and we have so far to go on this journey. And yet we know that ultimately you will bring us to a successful end if we follow you. We praise you and thank you for people who have left this world that we're reminded of even today and have attained their destination and their goal. And God, we ask you to, to help us to imitate them as your word commands us for those who love you and are good examples of faith. We ask that you continue to guide us and that you use us and that you miraculously show your agape love completed and perfected in the things that we do and say each day. Be with us now as we prepare our hearts to take this communion. Um, we invite you all to, to participate in communion if you are in relationship with Christ and you know him